so Mark chapter 3, and we are, uh, we're going to start in verse 7. So if you guys remember, Mark kind of has three distinct spots, and we've talked about this a bit as we've gone through it. The first half of the book is, is Mark, a Jewish guy in the first century. He's, he's met Jesus. He's followed Jesus around for a few years. He's seen all this amazing stuff Jesus has done. And he's seen Jesus die, and he's seen Jesus be raised from the dead. And the first half of the book, Mark is making this huge point. He's saying, hey, all you fellow fellow Jewish people who have read the Old Testament, and you've read about how someday God is going to send a Messiah that's going to save us from the consequence of our sins, that's going to make everything right. His big message is, Jesus is this Messiah that you've been waiting for. But then as you read through the chapters, and, and what we've done is we've read the first you know, two and a half chapters, is Mark's big point in his message of Jesus is the Messiah, is showing you how Jesus is a whole different kind of Messiah than they were expecting. The Jewish people in the first century were under the oppression of the Roman Empire, and they expected the Messiah to be some big military leader that would help them lead a big revolution against Rome. And instead of going around and gathering all the strong people for an army, Jesus goes around and spends time with the weak people and heals them. And then, instead of doing what any normal leader would do and try and become famous and get a really big following, Jesus does the opposite, where even though he's doing these undeniable, amazing, cool miracles, when he heals somebody, he specifically tells them, hey, don't go around telling everybody, just keep it on the down low. Right? And so Jesus is... He's, he's going after the sick and the hurting people and he's helping them and he's healing them. He's purposely not seeking fame. And you even found a couple times in those first couple chapters where when Jesus becomes famous in a place, because of course the people that he told not to tell anybody, they tell everybody, right? Just like you would. When he becomes famous in a place, he leaves that place because the crowds prevent him from doing the kind of work he came to do. So we are picking up in chapter 3, verse 7, which is right at the top left of page 701 in those blue Bibles. You ready? What we're going to do is we're going to read all the rest of chapter 3, and then a good chunk of chapter 4. We're just going to read the whole thing, and then we'll go back to the beginning and kind of walk through it piece, piece by piece. I'll explain a few things that I think are really cool, and then you'll head to your groups. So here we go. Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 7 again, the top left of page 701. Here we go. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, They fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about it. Verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, 
who betrayed him. That's a little spoiler on Mark's part there. Sorry if you haven't read this before. Verse 20, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. We don't really use the word Beelzebul anymore, but it is a very old word, and it basically just means the devil. All right? Um, literally, like in, in literal Greek, it means Lord of the Flies, and it's where the book Lord of the Flies got its title. But as far as just its overall usage and meaning, it's the devil. Okay? Verse 23. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Verse 30. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived standing outside. They sent someone to call to him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Verse 34. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Verse 4. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake, while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables, and, and in his teaching said, verse 3, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. Um, sow, S-O-W, means to plant, right? It doesn't mean to get a needle and throw thread through things. Yeah, it doesn't mean that. That's S-E-W. And it also doesn't mean sow, which is a mommy pig, even though that's spelled S-O-W. So a farmer sows, that's S-O-W, that means he plants seeds. All right? All right, so sorry. Um, verse 3, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew and choked out the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, and some 100 times. Then Jesus said, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Verse 10. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. So that, and here he quotes the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, They may be ever seeing, but never perceiving. And ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? 
Girls. Verse 14. The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Some thirty, some sixty, and some a hundred times what was sown. He said to them, Do you bring in a lamp and put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Verse 24, the last line of the page. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has will be given more, and whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from them. Verse 26, he also said, Oh, I went a little farther than I meant to. Sorry. I meant to stop at verse 20. So I was like, this is, I don't remember studying this. All right. So at the beginning of what we read at chapter uh, 3, verse 7, at the top of page 701 there, you see once again Jesus withdrawing from the big crowd, not seeking fame, but seeking to do what he came to do, which was heal people and teach people, but not be famous, not be crowned king or anything like that, which is what the people wanted to do to him. So he's doing that, and then he anoints what we call his apostles or disciples. They're people that he is going to specifically train. And Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, and this is very much in the tradition of Jewish rabbis to have a dozen or so disciples, people that live with him and follow him around and learn from him. And when he's gone, carry on the same traditions that he taught. And so Jesus is doing the same thing, but he's not just any rabbi. He's, he's the son of God. And so the things he's teaching are really, really different than what anyone else is teaching. And he's got some supernatural authority over demons and diseases and all this crazy stuff. And so these disciples are going to follow him around for about the next three years. And then after Jesus dies and rises again and then, and then goes to heaven, He is going to send these guys out on a mission to change the world. And their mission is why you and I have heard of Jesus today, by the way. So, it seems to have worked. And you get to to verse 22, and you get this really interesting conflict. So, Jesus is doing these miracles. He's healing people. And the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, they see what he's doing. And they see that what he's doing is a threat to them and their authority. Right? They are church leaders, but they don't really have anything supernatural that they're doing. And so they see Jesus, who has come out of nowhere, and they've never heard of him, never met him. And all of a sudden, it seems like God is doing these amazing things through him. And people are saying, this is the Messiah we've been waiting for. And so you know what these church leaders do? Their livelihood, their existence is threatened, so they go on the attack. And they say, the only reason Jesus is able to do anything special is because he's evil. He is using demonic powers 
to do these things. You get that? Jesus is there. He's healing sick people. And they're saying the only reason you have any power to heal sick people is because you're, you're using some sort of black magic. You're some sort of evil magician. And so Jesus points out the ridiculousness of what they're saying. Right? Jesus is there doing good. He's not doing evil. He's doing pure good. And he says, no, you can't use evil to drive out evil. That's not how it works. He says, a house that is set against itself doesn't stand. It crumbles. Like, evil is on the side of evil, not on the side of good. And then look at this really dramatic thing he says at the end. Look at verse 28 of chapter 3. He says, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. And then Mark clarifies, verse 30, he said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. So people read the end of verse 30 about Jesus saying that there's a sin people will never be forgiven of. And if you're like me, the first time you read it, you kind of like freak out a little bit. And you think, wait, wait, wait. Does this mean that there's some kind of thing I might accidentally say or accidentally do that God's like, oh, you crossed the line. That's it. You're done, man. Right? And that's actually kind of a terrifying thought. And, and people are like, well, well, what is this blaspheming the Holy Spirit? What's Jesus talking about? Well, if you want to know what Jesus is talking about, you just look at the context of what's going on. So again, Jesus is doing good. And people see the good he's doing. And the good he's doing is designed to show that he's the Messiah. And what do they do? They reject him. They say, nope, we don't want to have anything to do with you, Jesus. You're awful. And so then they make up lies about him. But the whole point of what the religious leaders at the time are doing is that they're rejecting Jesus. So why did Jesus come here? A few things, right? He, he came to show us a good way to live. He came to do miracles to heal people. But the big reason, the main number one reason he came was the cross. Jesus' whole mission was to live this perfect life you and I haven't lived, and then on the cross, willingly go to his death to pay the price for our sins. Jesus is the way we are saved. And so, if we reject Jesus, there's no other way to be saved. There's no plan B. Like, oh yeah, if you reject Jesus, you could always follow the teachings of the Dalai Lama, and then you'll be fine. Like, that's not how it works at all. Jesus was really clear about this. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to God the Father except through me. So the, the big sin against God that the Pharisees are committing here is that they're rejecting the only way they can possibly be saved. So now there's no way for them to be saved. It's like if you were drowning in a flash flood and a helicopter hovers above you and lowers down a rope that you can grab onto and the dude on the megaphone's like, grab the rope. And you're like, no, nah, I think ropes are dumb. Well, that's it, right? There's, there's not a boat. There's, there's just this one way that you can be saved 
And if you're, you know, if for whatever reason you choose, you reject that way, then that's it. So, that's what he's talking about. The function of the Holy Spirit, Jesus outlines really clearly, is to lead people to Jesus. So if you are against what the Holy Spirit is doing in leading you to Jesus, there's no other way for you to be saved. All right, let's go on to the main thing. Look at the beginning of chapter 4. So Jesus tells a story. And a lot of the stories Jesus tells, they're really dynamic and they have characters who, who learn things and, and kind of have dynamics in the characters where they change. On its surface, this story, which by the way is the only one of Jesus' parables that's in all four Gospels, it's kind of the most boring story you've ever read at first. It's about farming, right? A guy plants some seed, some of it doesn't grow, some of it grows for a little while and dies, some of it grows really well. That's the whole story, right? It's barely interesting, but it's about farming because everybody understands some basics of farming, right? You get it. If you wanted to plant wheat and you decided, I want to grow a lot of wheat, what do you need? Little kernels of wheat, right? They come from the top of the wheat stalks, and you know you get, need to get fertile ground, and you need to put it in the ground, and you need to water it and just let nature do its thing. And eventually that one little wheat kernel that you put in the ground is going to grow up and become this long stalk, and it's going to have hundreds of wheat kernels on it. And that's farming, right? Do that a lot of times, you have a lot of wheat, you feed a lot of people, and make money. Right? Really, really simple. Jesus tells a story about farming because everybody understands a little bit about farming. So Jesus says that this farmer goes out and he sows seed, he plants, on all these different kinds of soil. Some of the seed goes on hard soil, right? There were a lot of paths around where people would walk and where people walk all the time the ground gets really hard. So you know what happens? The seed doesn't go into the soil. It just sits on top and a bird comes and eats it. All right, that one's done. Didn't do anything at all except feed a bird for a tiny little bit. And some other seed goes into shallow ground. Have any of you guys ever tried to dig in central Oregon? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we were trying to put a sprinkler system in in our backyard once. And like four or five inches under the soil in my yard, there was this huge rock. And I tried to find the edges, and it was bigger than a car. So the sprinkler just had to go barely under the soil because my backyard was shallow ground. Well, guess what? You can't grow things well in shallow ground, especially in an area like this. You know what happens? All the roots go outward instead of going down. And so when it gets hot and dry out, that soil on the surface also gets hot and dry, and then there's nothing for the plant to eat. If you're in good soil, roots go down and out, and then even though it gets hot and dry, the soil underneath retains moisture, and there's something for the plant to eat, or drink, however you want to say it. So, the soil that the farmer, um, I mean, sorry, the seed that the farmer puts on shallow soil grows up, looks good at first, but then when the weather changes, withers and dies, that's the end of that. The farmer also plants some seed in what Jesus calls thorny soil. It's ground with a lot of weeds in it. If you're in Central Oregon, you know what it's like to pull weeds, right? Yeah. Weeds are annoying because they're really efficient. They're really, really good at what they do. They grow quickly. A lot of them um, turn on or activate in lower temperatures than the crops we try and grow, and so they get to the water first. And so if 
you're trying to grow something in soil that has a ton of weeds in it, it's either going to be a ton of work for you or the weeds are just going to take all the nutrients and the thing you're trying to grow isn't going to happen. So that happens. And then the last kind of soil, Jesus calls it good soil or fertile soil. That soil that is not shallow, doesn't have a bunch of weeds in it, is soft and not hard. And guess what? The thing happens that happens all the time. You put the seed in the ground, you cover it up, you water it, and just by amazing processes that God designed in nature, one seed becomes hundreds. Right? And you can eat a bunch of them, and you save some to plant for next year. Farming. So, story about farming. Here's what Jesus says about it. So, verse 13. Jesus said to them, Don't you understand the parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. What does the seed represent? The farmer sows the word. What does the seed represent? The word. The word. Good job. Yeah. Do you remember the word that the Gospel of Mark started with? Not like the individual word, but the message of Jesus? So do we get 20 points for word? Yes. Yes. So remember at the beginning of Mark, the 13th verse, the, the first thing Jesus says, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. Jesus is telling them that the Messiah they've waited for is here, that God is going to start changing things and fixing things and turning the world back into what it should be. So the farmer sows that word. All right? Verse 15. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. All right? So Jesus says some people hear the message about him and it just bounces off them and they just don't care. They say, yeah, that doesn't seem very important to me. And that's the end of it in their thought processes. Right? Nothing about their life changes. Probably hardly even think of Jesus. Verse 16. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. So Jesus says other people say that they believe in him. They hear about him and they say, wow, Jesus seemed to be a really awesome guy. And not only that, but he died on the cross to pay the price for my sins. That's super rad. I'm going to go with that. But then Jesus says when there's trouble or persecution, in other words, when it becomes a little bit difficult to be a Christian, they just decide that they're done with it. And our culture sees a lot of that now. Like even 20, 30 years ago, it was really, really acceptable and even a positive social thing for you to say you were a Christian and to say that you went to church regularly and all that. But that's changed in our society in the last couple. And now you're more likely to get made fun of for telling people you're a Christian than you are for being like, oh yeah, that's rad, that's cool, I can dig that. And so our society sees a lot of that, where people say, I want to believe in Jesus, but it's too hard, I don't want to be made fun of, it's not worth being made fun of, so I'm just going to go back to my regular life. Alright, keep going. Verse 18, still others, like seeds sown among thorns, Hear the word, 
But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. So other people hear about Jesus, that he died on the cross for their sins, that that he came as God, representing everything about God, and that he loves us and is kind to us and merciful to us, and, and they're really down with that. But then they read more of what Jesus has to say. How Jesus talked about surrendering everything in your life to him. How Jesus talked about being generous to the poor. How how Jesus makes these these commands on our life that if he is truly our Lord that we're going to follow. And they say, you know what? Maybe this isn't for me. I want to do what I want with my money. I want to ignore the poor people. I want to make the moral decisions I want to make because of my reasons and I don't want to submit my life to anybody else. And so Jesus says that's like the seed that's put into thorny ground where things that, are, that grab your attention more easily sprout up and take all your resources and your priorities. And then verse 20. Others like seed sown on good soil hear the word accept it and produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. Now, in the metaphor Jesus is building here, if the seed was originally God's word, his message, his goodness, what does it mean to produce a crop? What does it mean for that one seed to generate other seeds? Any ideas? Yeah, Ryan? What does it mean? Yeah. Right, yeah, it means that there is more of God's good message, of his good word out there, right? So like that, that seed of, of God's love, his goodness gets planted in you. And then as you grow and mature in your walk with God, you change. You become a very different person than you were. You become kind, you become merciful, you become generous, you become truthful. Over time, slowly, you become more and more like Jesus. And then guess what? The, the kingdom of God has grown. The message of Jesus in the world is there's more of it now because you're there. And, and all this, this Jesus goodness that, that God entirely does in you, it's not your own goodness. It's God's work in you. That's going to move on to other people. So just like you, know, you, you plant that one wheat seed, and eventually you get way more wheat seed than you started with. Well, one Christian who is surrendered to God and is following him is eventually going to result in an increase. It's going to happen. So, there you go. You got that? Yeah. Now, big things before we go to our groups. And sorry, I know I'm going a little too long here, but there's a couple big points. You look at your life and you think, you know what, I've been like one of those kinds of seeds. But I want to tell you about a couple main characters in the Bible. Jesus' lead disciple throughout the Gospels is a guy named Peter. You've heard of Peter, right? So Peter is really gung-ho about Jesus. But Peter is totally the shallow soil. Because when Jesus is arrested, and when it's hard to be a follower of Jesus, you know what Peter does? Denies ever even knowing Jesus. Just like Jesus said, when trouble or persecution comes, they fall away. That's what Peter did. But guess what? 
He didn't stay the shallow soil. God did something amazing and miraculous in his heart and changed him, and Peter became the leader of the early church. Or most of the New Testament was written by a guy that we know as Paul today. When you first meet Paul in the Bible, he's totally the hardened soil. He hears about Jesus, and he hates him, and he wants to get rid of him. And he doesn't consider that the message of Jesus could be true in the slightest. In fact, Paul becomes a persecutor of Christians. Until one day, guess what happens? He actually meets Jesus. And in that moment, he becomes the fertile soil. So, just because you're one thing, doesn't mean you're always going to be that one thing. God has the ability to miraculously change us from one thing to another. All right, head to your groups. Thank <laughs> you.